I'll tell you, joy is the key to a proper attitude in life. And brethren, we're all going to face all kinds of trials and struggles. It's not all a picnic. It's not all a, it's not all a hallelujah shout and match. I know that, friend. But joy is not created by possessions. Joy is not created by positions. Joy is created by a person, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And a good dose of holy joy would do us all well. And I'm not talking about silly putty religion here, brother. I'm talking about something that comes from being rightly related to God and being in the presence of God. I believe of all the people alive on planet Earth today, we should not be wringing our hands and worrying about the future and worrying about the end of the world and worrying about this and worrying about that. I believe of all the people in the world, we should have the joy of God in these latter days unparalleled to the rest of our society. All right. Good morning. Good to see everybody. Happy Sunday to you. And if you're here with us for the first time because you're visiting someone over the holidays, then uh, we give you a hearty welcome as well. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Philippians. That's in your New Testament in your Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible down the center aisle of seats, there are some Bibles underneath and you can grab one of those and watch, uh, look at that as we're working through the scripture this morning. Um, and if you're new to your Bible, it's going to be around page 636. I apologize. That's like extra fine font. It's supposed to be like eight point. I think it's four point. Those Bibles cost me to have glasses. All right. Philippians one, starting in verse 27 through the rest of the, through the end of the chapter. Let's read this together. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that I saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would penetrate our minds and that it would seep into our hearts and that it wouldn't just be information or knowledge that we have for today that uh, that gives us a tingle, brings a smile to our face. But God, that it would um, that, that you, by your great grace uh, and the spirit that that reigns in us would help us to live this out. And I pray that in Jesus name. Amen and amen. So if you've been paying attention to the news, I'm a news junkie. You've been reading it, watching it, listening to it. There's a lot that's been said about fake news, right? And think about it. There's a lot of things going on, a lot of things that we've been exposed to um, for which there's a lot of false claims being made. There's a lot of people that are advertising things to us, claiming things um, that just don't measure up. And if you're like me, I, I watch a little bit of TV, not a lot, but one of the things that um, one of the things that we're exposed to a lot that 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 gives us false claims are those late night infomercials. Y'all y'all familiar with those? That's not a lot of them around nowadays. It used to be a couple, maybe a decade ago, but I mean, no joke. Those things promise a lot, but really deliver a little bit. And there's a couple of them that that are my personal favorites. 
Uh, remember Ginsu steak knives? So, <laughs> Ginsu steak knives, actually a product from the 60s that's like reinvented itself over the last decades. Oh, by the way, you can still get Ginsu steak knives. And Ginsu steak knives were, um, they were marketed as the knife to beat all other knives. This, you had to have this knife because it was the sharpest, the most, uh, the most appealing to the, the culinary greats out there. It could chop meat and vegetables like a pro. You didn't even need a human being to do it. <laughs> Actually, in the commercial, they showed the knife cutting a tin can and then it cut a, you know, a, a, a thin slice through a paper and then it went on to cut food like it was supposed to. Here's the thing about the Ginsu steak knife. It was, it was uh, marketed as uh, uh, a Japanese set of knives and they had this Japanese chef that came on and he was doing his thing, making it appealing to us. Unfortunately, the Ginsu steak knife wasn't even Japanese. It was an American company. Uh, I forget the name of it, and they had marketed, uh, marketed the, the product over TV. It didn't sell that much, and so they, they created a new facade around it, and uh, voila, we have this Japanese guy that's offering us the knife to, to beat all knives, and Americans bought into it. And so, like millions of them later, it's still on the market. Anybody heard of uh, Suzanne Summers? Suzanne is famous firstly for her, her role in the, the sitcom Three's comedy, but Suzanne's, Suzanne's legacy is definitely um, more prominent with, uh, what's that thing called? The Thigh Master. All right, so Thigh Master, really, y'all are just guinea pig. I mean, just like suckers. Two pieces of metal, bent, put foam around it, you got a hinge, and you put it between your legs and you squeeze. You squeeze. And of course, there's a, flick, a hip flexor thing that's supposed to be going on that makes whatever this, this mid, midriff area here a little bit tighter. And uh, the marketing gimmick was, you could be doing anything that you wanna do at the same time that you're using the thigh master, and it was going to make your body, you know, just. <laughs> It's all nice and, and gorgeous. Um, oh, by the way, you can still buy Suzanne Summers. She wasn't the inventor. She was just the face behind the product. Um, you can still buy that on Amazon.com. And they are like 20 million plus going strong. Thigh master. Probably the one that's near and dear to my heart is, uh, is this one. It's Ronco GLH Formula Number no. 9 Spray On Hair. <laughs> and so for those of you in the room who are like me, follically challenged, and, and the hairs on top of your head don't grow anymore. I mean, come on. I mean, we can be uh, suckers for something that's going to at least make us look like we have hair. Here's the problem. With, uh, with formula number nine, spray on hair, uh, they, they tested uh, some guys, and even in the infomercial, they show some guys who are like me that, that don't have a lot of hair, and here's what they do. They, they spray the, the, the stuff on, and it's supposed to make it look like the ball spots are filled in with hair, but what it ends up looking like is that you just spray, spray paint on your head. <laughs> now, this one, this, this one didn't last. That company went bankrupt in 2007. But, I mean, here's the thing. 
False claims can be kind of funny, but the truth is they can lead us astray, can't they? I mean, think of the millions of dollars that some of you have spent because an infomercial grabbed your attention and you said, I got to have this thing. I got a whole list of them here. Google, if you will, um, the top 10 infomercials and some of the things on the list will surprise you because you're going to have some of these in your house. And so false claims can be funny, but they can lead us astray. And that leads us to our text. And this is what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to save us from, from gimmicks leading us astray. He uses the word only. And uh, in our vernacular, that would be if only. I like what other translations, how other, other translations introduce his, his topic here. The, uh, the new CSB, Christian Standard Bible says, just one thing. Paul's trying to get our attention. Hey, if, listen to this, just one thing. The New Living Translation says, above all. And what Paul is saying is, above all the other stuff that I've just talked to you about, my own predicament, suffering, and instead, instead of me just suffering and, and, and succumbing to the plight of life, just having joy, choosing to be joyful about it. He says, don't be led astray by stuff like this. And then he goes on in a few verses to say, uh, to say these words. He says, it matters how you live your life. It matters how you live your life. Above all, don't we let us stray by this point. It does matter how you live your life. And I like to say it like this. The life of the church must testify to the gospel that it proclaims. If you're here with us for the first time, we are in a series in the book of Philippians. It's a New Testament book. It's written by the Apostle Paul. And his purpose in writing this letter was to express his, his thanks and his affection for a group of people that had been supporting him for 10 years throughout his ministry. Philippians, as a, the, the, the city of Philippi, Philippi and the church in Philippi had been a group of people that Paul really had brought together by preaching the gospel to them. He founded the church, set leaders there, and they had kept in touch with him to the point of they were uh, funding and supporting his mission for the 10 years to present. And so Paul finds himself in prison. He's in prison again. This is 10 years future from the time that he had founded Philippi. And in this letter, he is firstly concentrating on his own predicament. Again, Paul is in Rome. Uh, Acts 28 tells us that he's in prison and he's been in prison for at least Two years chained to a, a Roman guardsman, not not able to have the freedom that you and I have even to move about. And yet one of the words that Paul most frequently uses throughout the letter is the word joy or derivatives of the word joy, like rejoice and rejoicing, despite his particular circumstance. And particularly in the first chapter, Paul takes the time to relieve their anxiety. Okay, they're friends of his, so they would have been worried about him being incarcerated and being in prison. So he's trying to relieve them about his own welfare. But he later develops what we learn are a few concerns for the Philippian church and their lives as Christians. And that particular concern is that they were being tested by opposition. He doesn't uh, he doesn't unpack necessarily what that opposition is, but as the Bible interprets the Bible, we can just look back to Acts chapter 16 and see that some of the, the opposition that Paul had when he was in Philippi. Paul goes into uh, Macedonia, was led to Philippi by the Holy Spirit. He meets some people, first Lydia, uh, at, on a, at the, a, a place of prayer, uh, leads her to faith and her household. And then walking along the street, he has this demon-possessed slave girl that's chasing him, following behind him, 
and uh, basically mocking, mocking God, saying, this is Paul. They're servants of the Most High God. He knows Jesus. And what does Paul do? He exercises the demon. He casts the demon out of her. This girl, unfortunately, happens to belong to um, gentlemen who, who own her and who are using this demonic gift of hers to earn a living for themselves. And they cause a riot in the city and they get Paul thrown into jail. And I think the same kind of opposition that Paul experienced there in Acts 16 is what he's alluding to here. And what I think is coming out of that is that is, is, is Paul is not necessarily stating this directly, but he's suggesting that the Philippians don't don't quite have their act together. They don't know how to act, how to come together as a church to defend themselves, but also to ward off uh, the enemy of the church and the enemies of the gospel. And one of the first things that he tells them in our text is that their faithfulness to the gospel can't be based upon someone else's faith. So Paul says, you know what? It's, it, it, it doesn't matter if I'm here or if I just hear about you. I want to hear that you're holding true to what I taught you many years before. I want you to be true to what's fitting and what's right. And of course, his concern is about their individual lives as Christians, but he's also concerned about the witness of the gospel. The witness of the gospel. His leading phrase is this. This is the big idea from our text. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so the question that we want to ask today in our time together is, what does it mean to live lives worthy of the gospel? And Paul unpacks that for us um, very clearly in verse 27. Firstly, he says, let your manner of life, that, the, those, that phrase let your manner of life simply means live as citizens. And Paul is really commending here to the, the Philippians that they live dual perspectives. Firstly, he's saying um, you're on the earth, you're in a city. And so live faithfully, you know, as at, with as, as much pride and um, whatever that, that, that you might have as a citizen of that city. And Philippi was special in that it was a Roman colony. It was on the outskirts of the, 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 the Roman colonies, but it was, in every sense of the, the, the meaning, a Roman colony. And being a Roman citizen was a special privilege reserved for leading families. Being a Roman citizen was, was special, and it was reserved for those who were elite. In fact, um, you couldn't just become a Roman citizen just because you wanted to. You either had to be born into it. Oh, by the way, Paul was born a Roman citizen, which says to us his parents, his family were affluent and were elite. Paul was sent to some of the best schools. He had some of the best training. He ended up being one of the smartest people, obviously, uh, and one of the most zealous Pharisees. And that was because of his upbringing. But other people weren't as fortunate as people like Paul who were born into citizenship. Some of them had to get sponsored by those who were already citizens. Many people had to buy their citizenship and to buy a citizenship in Rome would have been costly. Many of the Philippians, uh, many of the Philippians were actually retired soldiers who had spent their lives serving Rome. And so they gained their citizenship because of their distinguished military service. So here's what Paul is firstly saying. He's appealing to the pride and the privilege of Roman citizenship. He's saying if you're in if, if you're in Philippi, which is a Roman colony, then be faithful to being a citizen of Rome and be a citizen in every measure of what that means. But he's also saying and he's, he's more so saying you got to be a citizen under the gospel. 
That's what he means when he says have lives worthy of the gospel. He's saying be a citizen in light of the gospel. And really what this is suggesting is that we have a missionary outlook to our lives where we are concerned for the welfare of the state. This is almost like uh, Jeremiah in the Old Testament, speaking to Old Testament Israel, that their welfare is tied up in the welfare of the city that they found themselves in, even in exile. But Paul is taking this a step further because he's saying the church really is a city in a city. It's, it's a heavenly city. In fact, several weeks from now, we'll look at chapter three, verse 20, where Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what is living a life as a citizen of heaven actually looks like? And that's what Paul unpacks for us in in verse 27. And the first thing that he says is we must be united. We have to be united in our purpose. Um, Unity in our current day is like a cuss word, isn't it? Because our country is so divided over some some very serious, large topics of discussion. But but there's also division because we're, we're divided over large ideas. We're also divided almost uh, almost on everything. At least that's the way it feels from from my 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 vantage point. And so don't don't shut me out because I'm using the word unity. Unity is it's not a bad word. It's, it's a church word because this is the word that Paul is, is commending to us in, the, in our Bibles right here. And so Paul says we must be united in purpose. And he emphasizes that point with with these successive phrases. He says our unity looks like it's in one spirit with one mind and striving side by side. So firstly, he tells us to stand firm in one spirit. Most commentators interpret uh, these two phrases in one spirit, which is spirit being the Greek word pneuma. And with one mind, mind being the Greek word suke, meaning soul, as really the, uh, a synonymous expression. You are, as a, you are a human being and you have a body with a, with a spirit or soul. The Bible uses the word spirit and soul interchangeably. OK, so that theology aside, here's what Paul is calling us to. He's saying that we need to be unified in our perspective. So he says, stand firm. Be be resolute, be unwavering in your loyalty to one another. For those of you who are in the military or have a military background or have been around a military, this is something that you you practice every day. This is like good old esprit de corps, right? I know what that is, esprit de corps, that that our value is, is, as we come together, it's larger than the value of us individually. And, And we're in it together. All of us, you know, in one fell swoop, we're all in it together, esprit de corps. Paul is saying be unified in their perspective. He uses this word one spirit. And, you know, the, the word spirit is not capitalized here, but it very well could be when you think about the, the fact that the common experience that unifies us is the Holy Spirit. If it were not for the Holy Spirit in the church, we would our, our unity would look as shallow as the unity that that looks like a movie theater where people are coming from all walks of life to watch a movie. Why are they there? They're there to eat popcorn, drink soda and watch a movie. Do they care about each other? Probably not. Paul is calling us to a greater degree of unity than just going to a room and being, you know, being Skittles in a room, but having nothing to do with each other. And so it's the Holy Spirit that does that. 
in our, in our lives. Think about what the Holy Spirit does. If you know anything about your Bible, the Holy Spirit draws you, gives you a new life. The Holy Spirit indwells you. And then what the Holy Spirit does is the, the Holy Spirit brings you to faith singularly, but he doesn't leave you there. He incorporates you into the life of the church. He brings you into the unity of the church. And I would tell you, the whole, when the Holy Spirit does that, he's, he's performing a miracle. Because he's taking people who are from very disparate parts of life and culture, and he's bringing you into one. He's not making us homogenous, but he is giving us a higher value that we would look to that makes us coming together uh, uh, more doable. The Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit is the supernatural basis for our unity. And Paul says, stand firm united in this supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Stand firm in one spirit with one mind. So he wants us to contend with one mind. And this is not that we should all think alike. What he's saying here is that not every person should be for themselves. It's not, I go to the movie theater, I got popcorn, you got peanuts, you got Skittles, you got Mike and Ike's. Don't you love Mike and Ike's? Dang, ooh, those things. Yes, yes, yes. Don't, Don't say no. But we're all in the movie theater and all they're giving out is popcorn. That's not true. God doesn't care if you have popcorn or, 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 or peanuts or Mike and Ike's and all that stuff. But he's saying, all right, so we're here for one purpose. And the one purpose is not just to watch the movie. It's, it's, it's for God and, and his gospel. We're here and not everyone is for themselves. And so we're standing firm in one spirit with one mind. And here's the kicker here. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Again, this is good old teamwork. This is helping one another. Paul is giving us here really two metaphors behind these words. One is military. The other is it's kind of athletic. Um, firstly, he's thinking of combat. In Paul, Paul's day, it would have been the Roman legionnaires. Uh, and so when the Roman legion would have gone to combat, they would have been, you know, marching out in ranks uh, in ranks and groupings of 50 or 100 men. They would have had I mean, they would have been decked out in their armor. They would have had a spear in one hand to cover their, you know, to thrust the enemy. They would have had some kind of chain link or, or, or metal armor in front. In their other hand, they would have had some kind of a, a metal shield. And that shield would have been firstly used to, uh, to guard themselves and, and, to, and to form uh, not just a shoulder to shoulder wall, but an overhead roof over their heads as their enemy is launching arrows out toward them. And of course, this this uh, after the initial onslaught of the enemy with their arrows, this this troop, they're going to march forward side by side, going out and, you know, in ranks to uh, address whatever the opposing force is in front of them. He also gives us uh, there's another metaphor behind this, and it's really an athletic metaphor. Uh, Greek athletics developed out of uh, out of military training, so much so that the first that the, the first uh location of the Olympics was not far from Philippi. It was in Ikea. And there's, there's all kind of military team training that we can think of uh, in our day that would lend to this, this metaphor. Last night, if you're watching a little bit of TV, you saw the Nats in the eighth inning come back, you know, a great win over, over the Cubs. And, you know, baseball is, is a sport where each man on the team 
whether they're a baseman or an infield or an outfield or a, or a shortstop or the catcher. I mean, they've got to all play their role. Each has an individual role. Of course, when you're hitting a, uh, when you're at bat, it's only one person at bat, but it takes every one of those individual team members on the team, offense, defense, to, to make the team win, right? And that's, that's kind of the, the, the thing that he's, he's uh, encouraging us to see here. An athletic team has a visible common purpose, not one person doing it all, but a group of people striving to accomplish their common goal. Um, the, the, the most prevalent picture that we have is football, right? This afternoon, or maybe you're watching college football yesterday. This afternoon, you're going to have a bunch of professional teams that are really going to put this on display. You're going to have linemen, offensive and defensive, that literally are going to line up side by side, right? They're going to be beside each other. There's going to be little space in between them, and whether they're offensive or defensive, they're working together to meet the goals of their team. And that's what Paul is calling us to, not to be football linemen, but to work side by side for the faith of the gospel. And I think it's, it's important not to miss the imagery that Paul is giving us here. Uh, he's giving us a, 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 a metaphor of soldiers on the field of battle. He's giving us a picture also of, of athletes on the field of friendly strife. And so I think you take from that, firstly, we're in a battle, that, that the Christian life can be a battle. If you're doing it right, it will be a battle. But in the, the, the specific picture he's giving us here of standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving, by, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel is that we don't fight alone. At least we shouldn't be. God brings you into the faith singularly as an individual, but he supernaturally includes you into the life of the church. Uh, when I think of this, this topic of, of standing together under the gospel, I think of two metaphors for the church. The, the, the first would be the church as a tour bus. Any of y'all, I know we live in D.C., but any of y'all gone down to um, down to downtown D.C., around the National Capital area, uh, the, the mall, and gotten on one of those double-decker buses. You, at least you've seen them, right? Okay, so it's actually a pretty cool tour. You can, you can tour almost all of, uh, all of D.C., even some of the, the, the neighborhoods, all the historic stuff. And the cool part of the, about it is, is when you buy a ticket, you can get on, get off whenever you want. Say you're, you're, you're touring and you see some stuff, you see something like you see the International Spy Museum. It's like, I want to get out and go, you know, I got a ticket, I want to go in and, and check that out. You can do that. And then a bus will come back by a little bit later and you can hop back on. And so here's the way some of us treat church. Some of us treat church as if it were a tour bus. And here's the thing when you're on a tour bus. Everybody's a passenger. And if you're in one of these double-decker buses with the top part is open, you're getting the, some air, you're getting the, uh, the tour that you hear from the, the person that's knowledgeable about the route, and it's kind of scenic. But if we're all passengers, that means we're all onlookers. We're not doing a thing but looking. And sometimes we treat church like that. And a church where everybody's a passenger, we're all onlookers, the, the, I mean, what happens is you've got a church full of people that, not, that aren't involved. There's no investment. And so, I mean, honestly, we don't want to be a church like that. Here's another metaphor. A church as a construction site. Anybody walk past this construction site lately? Right? Construction site. Um, there's usually a lot of activity going on. It's kind of messy. There's all kinds of people there. You have 
metal workers and you have people that are operating heavy machines and you have people who are doing uh, mortar work. You have electricians eventually, you have carpenters, you have painters, uh, you have uh, general contractors, you have people going in and out, various skills, all kinds of stuff. And um, when you look at it from an outside perspective, it can look as messy as all get out, right? But what you have there is you have a team of people that have come together and they're actually building something. And to get that building built, it requires all hands on deck. And so here's what Paul is saying. The, 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 the gospel calls us to be unified, standing in one spirit with one mind, stri striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And we can have this perspective that, you know, I, I want to go to church. I'm called to be in church. But church for me is just like I'm going to show up. I'm going to drink a little coffee. I'm going to listen to the great worship team, listen to some music. I might sing along a little bit if I feel good. And what we're doing is we're just being onlookers. We're being passengers uh, as, the, as the bus is rolling by. And, and there's no involvement in that. But what God has really called us to is to be a church that's a construction site. And I would tell you, that's the kind of church that we are. We're a mess, right? And, and we're not a mess because we don't have our act together. We're a mess because y'all are here. Did you know that? We're a mess because you're here. We're a mess because I'm here. And, and it's not that your life is completely broken, but, but life is messy. And, but therein is the church. And God has brought all these people from different walks of life, from different backgrounds and different cultures. And that's by God's own doing. It's the tapestry of, of the people in his world. God didn't make a mistake when he made you, you. And instead of us being isolated, loving God on the periphery, or even loving God individually by ourselves, he's called us into the same space, and he's called us to be united. Not for unity's sake, he's called us to be united under the banner of the gospel. The God who lived for me, who died for me, who rose again, and who's coming again. And so being on, being on a team, that's what, that's what unity really means. It's doing your part. In the church world, we call that serving. It's encouraging others for the part they play on our team. Have you ever taken the time to thank the people that you see holding the door or that takes up the offering that set this stuff up that, that, that leads us in worship? We should take the time every once in a while to thank them for the part they do to lead us. It's rejoicing with others who do well. It's taking ownership for the mission and vision of the church as if I have a part to play in that. It's having intentional, proactive, purposeful pursuit of unity in the church. And oh, by the way, this is not unity for unity's sake, because we're not just going to a movie theater, eating our own popcorn and paying attention to whatever's on the screen. Paul says this is for the sake of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so what binds us together, it's not age. It's not economic status. It's not any preference, although obviously we're, we're here by preference. It's the gospel, the gospel of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. I use this analogy all the time. I got to stop using it because Paul is rebuking me here. Like, I, I use the analogy that I want us to be like a bag of Skittles. And we are that. I'm looking out like, wow, wow, we got the Skittles here. There are no brown Skittles, but we got brown ones here. Thank, thank the Lord. <laughs> they should make some brown Skittles. But here, this is what Paul is, is commending to us. We're not Skittles. We're magnets. 
we're magnets, and I don't know exactly how a magnet works. Y'all, I mean, y'all know how it works, right? There's, there's some metallic stuff that somehow comes together and it, it binds together. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in us, because we could not do that by ourselves. The Holy Spirit is, is he, he indwells you, and he, as he's drawing you, ever so closely to Jesus, there's this also drawing to, to us together. And it's not a, a perfect process. It act, honestly, it's a slow process because the mess in us has to, has, to, has to be dealt with so that we see people as God sees them. But that's, what ha- that's what's happening. The, he, he's magnetizing us so that we, by the Holy Spirit, would have an internal unity amongst us. And Really, I don't know if this comes out to you, but it comes out to me. Paul is concerned about this for the church at Philippi. And because this is inspired, he's concerned about this for you and me, too. And his concern is that we would not do this, that we would not stand firm, unified. He's, he's concerned that the gospel would not advance. If we aren't unified, then the gospel is, absolutely won't advance. And I would tell you, there are a lot of enemies to us striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. The first is judging. Um, think of the last time that you had a little bit of criticism for somebody that was trying to do something, something well. I mean, it's just in us sometimes, isn't it, to criticize? Sometimes we respond poorly when others are, others bring correction. I hate to be cor- I, I hate to be corrected. Honestly, I do. It's critically evaluating dec- decisions. Why they do it that way? Don't they know it would look better like this? We do that at home. We do it at work. We do it in the church. Approaching someone uh, and just asking questions. Um, I mean, you got preconceived notions. You get bitter uh, when you should just approach someone and, and ask them questions. Here's, a, here's a, one of the enemies of striving side by side is selfish ambition. Uh, well, I can't let you get that right or look good doing it because I want to look good doing it. And probably a close cousin to that is simply selfishness. Selfishness is the root of all of our sin. It, it's not wanting to give up our time, of our resources, of our skills, the things that God has gift us, gifted us with. Not wanting to give up even our reputation for the good of the whole. It's not wanting to do our part. And then what happens after that is we simply take God's grace for granted. And the, the, I mean, it's like, like this escalating thing that's rolling down and we can't stop it. And at that point, um, we're no longer zealous for God and his gospel. And it's going to show. And so here's what Paul is saying. It would be too easy for us to put our own needs and agendas ahead of, of other people because that's natural to us. It's natural for us to have selfish ambition and to be selfish. That's why he says being united is hard work. And that's why he's encouraging the church at Philippi towards it. And that's why he's encouraging us toward it as well. They needed this exhortation. Paul says, keep stay together. Keep united by putting your personal agenda uh, on the back burner. So those are three uh, really positive things that he says for which we are to have unity. And gives, he gives uh, us, lastly, a negative one. Verse 28, he says, don't fear opposition. Look at verse 28. And not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. You know, so, so some of us do face persecution. And I said this uh, last week, I said this two weeks ago, that when we are suffering at the hands of other people, that simply is persecution. 
And there are a lot of modern-day examples. There's modern-day examples in your life in and outside of the church. It's when someone at your job dislikes you or treats you differently after they figure out that you're a person of faith, that you, that you know and, and love and are serving Jesus. It's those who might undermine you for what you believe. It's those in your family that might even think you're crazy because you said, I've become a Christian, I'm going to follow Jesus now. It's, it's, it's those who might go out of their way to avoid you so that they don't have to come in contact with you and your Jesus. I think it's even those who try to interfere with the progress of the church. Um, and in a sense, every church has, has people, every church in a local community have people that oppose it. We haven't had a lot of overt persecution um, as a church, but there is one thing that just bothers me. Just it, it actually bothers me. It happens uh, every other month. There's there's uh, there's this trend. You, some of y'all have never noticed this, but as you're coming up down Old Telegraph Road here, there are some signs on the road. Uh, y'all y'all ever notice those? No. All right. So for new people, it's just sort of pointing the way. All right, we're here. We got flags out, sort of like walking you up so that you know that you're in the right place. We're a transit church. We'll meet in a school. So um, every other month or so, someone vandalizes those roads. I mean, they don't cost a lot of money, but just, it's just the principle of the matter. Uh, so we'll find them uh, tossed in the woods. Sometimes we'll find them uh, just mangled and tossed over into Hayfield's baseball field. Sometimes they'll just take them up and lay them on the ground just, uh, just so people won't see them. And, uh, and, you know, that's kind of a petty thing. I don't know if it's a kid that's running by. I don't know if it's uh, one of the neighbors here that says, like, this is my street. Get this stuff off my street. I don't know what it is, but it is a form of persecution. It's, it's in a sense, um, someone who is opposing what they think church means or stands. And here's what Paul is saying to stuff, even petty stuff like that. He's saying, don't be afraid of people who do stuff like that. You're going to face opposition. You're even going to face even um, more severe kinds of suffering. But we're not supposed to um, we're not supposed to be afraid of, of people like that. And when he says don't be afraid, he's giving us kind of a, a behind the scenes picture of, of a horse that that's shocked or startled. And uh, they, they just like stampede away or, or better yet, uh, think of a, a, a ragtag army that is afraid of the enemy that's in front of them and they retreat, you know, because they're afraid to face to face that enemy. Paul says, um, I mean, don't be afraid that we have no reason to be afraid. And here's why. It's a sure sign to them of their destruction. In other words, our unity under the banner of the gospel is a sure sign to them of their destruction. That means they are true enemies of God and um, and every one of us that live and breathe on this planet has to decide what we're going to do with the man who, who lived and died on the cross in our place for our sin, every one of us. But it's a sign of your salvation, and he says, that from God. I would tell you that I've come to believe that some of us face persecution, but most of us have no idea of what it means to actually suffer for what we believe. Did you hear that? There's some of you that have actually experienced persecution, suffering at the hands of other people because you're a Christian. But the majority of us actually have no idea of what it's like. And here's why. And this this is not good, but we aren't vocal enough about our lives as Christians, that people can't tell from our lives that we actually serve Jesus. And so when you think about 
uh, Paul telling us not to fear opposition, that actually we have a different kind of fear. We're not fearing people out there that are coming against us and the church. Actually, our fear is more inside of here, what people think about us. Our fear is more inside of here, what I'm thinking about myself. And sometimes, sometimes our fears are, are simply that we fear judgments of people for what they believe. We fear that people are going to judge us for what we believe. We fear that the gospel won't stand up against man-made philosophies, that we won't be able to articulate why we know and love and serve Jesus, as opposed to someone who's coming from a Buddhist or a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or even an agnostic or atheistic perspective. And Paul says when we have these fears, we need to remember one thing. The truth of the gospel is that it's God's gospel. We're the recipients of it, but this is God representing himself. Paul says in Romans uh, chapter one, verse 16, I don't have to be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of all those who believe. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to say, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. And so what's the key? Paul says, remain united in purpose. We must have others to stand firm with us. All right. So unity, big topic, big topic in our country now, big topic for us in Scripture. Here's the second thing Paul says in our text. We must be informed by a common understanding. And that understanding is an understanding of grace. There could be, there's a lot that we could say about grace, uh, but it's fitting that Paul would conclude his letter by talking about it. And he he talks about it in terms of two gifts of grace. The first is faith and the last is suffering. Look at verse 29. Paul says, for it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. That faith and suffering are gifts is signified by the words that Paul uses. Paul uses this phrase, it has been granted, which is a Greek word that is a derivative of the, the, the Greek word charis, meaning grace. Think of uh, charis meaning charisma. You heard of charisma? So, I mean, grace, I mean, that's a word we toss around a lot, right? I mean, so what, what is grace? Grace is, is your kid that you have taught to not climb on top of the, the counter and get cookies out of the cookie jar. But when you leave the kitchen, your kid does just that. He or she climbs on top of the counter in the kitchen, puts his hands. And in fact, he just sits there and he like continually just taking cookies out of the cookie jar and eating them. And of course, what do you do? That kid needs a little bit of discipline, at least a little bit of talking to, because the kid has gone from being just a child, doing what children do, to being foolish. What's a fool? Someone who knows not to do, but does it anyway. And so what do you do with that child? You could discipline the child. Grace would be, though, sitting down and have a cookie with that child. I mean, none of us would do that, right? I would. Oh, no, I would. <laughs> Cookies are good. Paul said, I mean, this is what grace is. Grace is it's, it's favor. It's, it's you not getting what you deserve. But more than that, grace comes from God. It's his gift to you. Grace is divine favor in spite of what we deserve. And so Paul first tells us that God gives us not for anything that we have done that that deserve an accolade. He gives us for the sake of Christ to believe, that is to have faith. And what I take from this and what you should take from this is that even in your believing, you need God's help. 
That's kind of humbling, right? It, it should be humbling to know that even your faith is not dependent on any contribution that you make to your salvation. You contribute nothing to your salvation. You have to respond. Paul says, uh, 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 Jesus says, the work that you do uh, in response to the gift of grace that God gives you is simply to believe. That's the work that you do. But you don't contribute anything to your salvation. Faith is a gift from God. And what it involves is you transferring your trust away from your good intentions, your resources, your achievements, and instead you're relying on Jesus and what he's done for you on the cross. But, but here's the thing. In our text, Paul is not necessarily emphasizing this gift of faith that leads to salvation. What he's emphasizing is the suffering. And I, I kind of beat that up two weeks ago, and so I'm not going to um, address it that much. But, but just think about this. Think of how hard it is for you to believe that suffering could be a gift of grace. Think of how hard it, I mean, when has suffering ever been a gift of grace for any of us? I was in a, a barbershop yesterday. My boys and I all needed haircuts because I wasn't going to use the Ronco GLCL number nine to spray, uh, spray uh, paint on my head to make it look fuller. And so uh, a, friend of, uh, a friend of ours, a family friend, uh, is in the barbershop getting his, hair, uh, getting his hair cut as well and uh, just had a, a, a really good time of getting uh, just caught up with what's going on with their family, and they've been going through a really difficult time, uh, particularly his wife. His wife had uh, just some medical issues that had left her in a wheelchair, uh, not even able to walk, not even a step. And uh, the con- just the conversation ensued, just trying to figure out what's going on in their life. And, you know, just TRICARE, VA, all these things that he's, he's having to do. And he's active duty Army. And uh, I could tell it was just weighing down on him. And so I, and, and towards the end of the conversation, I asked him, I said, so, I mean, have you, have you all been discouraged by, by much of this? And uh, he said, Jeff, you just, you just wouldn't believe. He said, my wife it, has been handling this really well. He says, in fact, you know, her only discouragement is that she can't do the things she's normally, that she normally does. She isn't able to help, and she needs help in almost everything. But me, he said, this is like torn me to my core. He says, I've been, you know, especially I've been at the highest of highs for, for most of my Christian life, and this has brought me so low, I don't even know what to do with it. But then he said these words. He said, but you know what? I said, um, he said, you know, I, I don't know if I call it suffering or what. But I know that, that God has taught me a lesson that I wouldn't have gotten any other way. And the lesson is that, um, that he's trying to wean me from, from, from living life and doing everything in my own strength. And I tell you, buddy, this has done it. And, and that's what I would offer you, that, that what suffering does for us. Uh, from a human perspective, not many people want to, I mean, no one wants to go through suffering. But what Paul is offering us it's not just the opportunity to suffer, but the opportunity to change your perspective as you suffer. And here's what I think he's encouraging us to, to think. As long as we insist on viewing the world through our own eyes and through our own perspective, and sometimes in the American Christianity that we have, that's a perspective of comfort and security and happiness as, as our benchmarks, we'll never accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. We'll never um, accomplish what God desires. And I think for Paul, the key is exchanging our view for God's view. 
What would it mean for you to, to actually pray that, that God, you would give me a different perspective of just some of the hard things that I'm facing right now in life? I think Paul is offering us an opportunity to process our circumstance through God's perspective. And I think that's what he's doing here to this church at Philippi and to us. He's encouraging us to do the same. Here's a hard saying. We shouldn't just accept the fact that we may suffer for Christ, but we should embrace it. That's what he's offering us. Let me conclude with this. Here's the message that Paul is giving us. It's not a message that's a false claim. He's saying the message that I've given the church is a message that's, that, that, that's God's message. It's, it's, it comes with his power, but it also comes uh, with an ability to save those who can't save themselves. And he says the message is true. It's not a false gimmick. It's not like the infomercials that you would see on TV at night. Paul is telling us that we have to fight for unity because unity just doesn't come because we sit in the same room together. And so his encouragement to us is that we would stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving by side, side by side for Jesus and his gospel. I, I, I think that we need to embrace that we are a church that's a, that's a construction site. I mean, we're kind of messy. And we're messy because all of us are here and we bring the mess with us. And that's not a bad thing. It's just how God intended it. And only God in his grace can can help us work through that process together in Jesus name. But here's what I'm encouraged by. God is building something. He really is. He's building something through us, even through our mess. And and if you remember anything, remember this by God's grace. Let our individual lives and the life of our church testify to the gospel that we proclaim. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. God, that you give us, you gift us both faith and suffering. And those things grow us. They grow us to uh, grow us in our salvation, but, also, but it just grows us to be more like you. And so, Lord, I, 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 I pray not just suffering on our people, but they would have the right perspective. God, that you, would, that you would bring us into your suffering and that from that you would help us to grow. Lord, for those of us here who just have specific things in their life for which they are suffering, persecution from the hands of other people or just a heart lot in life, God, I pray that you come alongside them by your Holy Spirit, that you comfort them. God, that you would give them a perspective. Like the psalmist said, God, that you would lift them up on a rock so they can see what you see. Help us to withstand. God, make us a church that's um, not just a, a bunch of people on a bus that the bus passes by. Make us a people who uh, resemble a construction site. A little messy, but God, you're doing, you're doing something. You're building something here. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.